This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the loss of a child may be a parent's worst nightmare. One can imagine that the grief it entails might be unbearable. Two books published this year by Seattle authors offer gentle advice for anyone grieving a debilitating loss. Both are by mothers who lost sons. Both seek to fill in an empty space the authors found in their experience of grief. Paula Becker's A Little Book of Self-Care for Those Who Grieve offers solace in few words. That was something Becker found lacking as she struggled to endure the overwhelming grief she experienced from the death of her son Hunter in 2017. The book, quote, offers grievers a quiet touchstone of care and advice that can be returned to again and again, unquote. Author and journalist Carol Smith lost her son, Christopher, many years ago when he was seven years old. She also struggled to find ways to survive that loss. Her memoir about that journey is Crossing the River, Seven Stories That Saved My Life. In writing it, she hoped to give others a sense of a roadmap to how grief might touch and shape their lives over time. Paula Becker is a writer and historian. Her works include Looking for Betty MacDonald and the memoir A House on Stilts, Mothering in the Age of Opioid Addiction. Carol Smith is an award-winning journalist and an editor at KUOW. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented this conversation between Paula Becker and Carol Smith on September 8th. Elliott Bay's Rick Simonson introduced the program. Paula Becker is somebody who's um, been near and dear to Elliott Bay for many years. She's both within Elliott Bay's um, realm, but else, elsewhere. She's first been known um, as a as a wonderful historian and chronicler of of things that um, too often get overlooked in terms of history and moments and people um, that have helped shape this region. Um, she co-authored a, a book on um, our two world's fairs, the one in 1962 and the Alaska Yukon Exposition, which I almost am old enough to remember. Um, <laughs> Not quite, but um, as well as a lot of work on um, the wonderful um, website called History Link. Um, she's she's authored hundreds of articles that are there, and that's one of the places if you want to find out things that are not always in, in the in the realm in the bounds of books. Um, History Link has a lot of that information. More recently, of those kind of books, um, and this was getting talked about a little before here, um, her um, remarkable biography of. The author Betty McDonald is uh, entitled "Looking for Betty McDonald," that um, has um, helped generate a lot of 
a renewed interest in an iconic Northwest author, most famously the author of The Egg and I, but other books as well. And then um, she has become known in, in a way for, for a, a book, and in this one too, I think tonight are books that um, in, in would not have ever set out to want to write um, in terms of aspiration about writing you know, years ago. But um, her memoir, A House on Stilts, Mothering in the Age of Opioid Addiction, um, is about her son Hunter and his death and what, you know, there's everything that led to that and what the process um, as, a, as a narrative, as a story, was for her and her family. Um, this new book, this little book of self-care, um, is a book that to actually, I think it's a book, um, and she and Carol will talk about this more than I, than I need to, um, that Paula would have found useful um, in, in going through the throes of intense um, immediate grief, um, which is also something Carol Smith has written of eloquently in Crossing the River. Um, Carol, who is with us um, as, as a writer, as a journalist, um, first um, for the Seattle PI, left um, to go to be at the LA Times, came back and has been an editor um, at KUW, and now has written her book, which also um, is about a death of a son. Um, so the two of them tonight, they will uh, talk and Paul, I think will read some of the passages. The subject is one that many of us, you know, so many of us know, and if we don't know, um, they, you know, we will. I mean, uh, these, these are, this is a subject you don't go looking for, but the subject of death and grief come to us um, in living life. So um, this is a book about how to carry that and, and, and just navigate that. So. Thank you. And now please join in giving um, a good virtual welcome and applause to Paula Becker and Carol Smith. Thank you both. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you. Um, Elliot Bay has supported my writing career from the very beginning, and it's just an honor to uh, be launching this book with you tonight. Also, thank my husband, Barry Brown. Uh, and my son Sawyer and my daughter Lily, who um, have experienced all of this with me, and um, who make it uh, make it just uh, incredible every day to to be related to them, to be part of the family with them, um, and also to all the friends and family who are here today with us in this room, who um, love us, loved Hunter, and have supported us in our grief. I appreciate that. Um, My grief has been seen by many of you in this room. So thank you for that. Um, And mostly thank you to all of you who are here tonight. And I want to acknowledge the presence here with us of people who are grieving, uh, some people who may be grieving a very, very recent loss. Um, We are here to support each other and the, the weight of the grief in this world can buoy us up and hold us up together. And so I want you to know that we see your grief. I see your grief as best as I can. And also um, the presence and the memory of the people who uh, each one is, is grieving. And I just say, uh, as I say to my son, Hunter, I remember you. So we remember your person who you lost and we're glad that you're here with us tonight. So, I'm going to read just a little bit, maybe five minutes or so of a little book of self-care for those who grieve. Um, My idea really was to have something that would be helpful in the earliest days of grief when 
my experience was that my attention was completely shattered. Um, and I didn't find something that was what I was looking for, which was basically the way that a, that a picture book comforts a little child. I wanted that kind of comfort, both from the pictures and from the words and from uh, a lot of blank space, <laughs> a lot of space for my eyes to land on something that, that wasn't going to ask them to do something or, or, or grieve um, from what I was looking at. So I'm going to skip around a little, just a little bit. Um, and just do know that in the beginning of the book, there are very few words on each page and that we do build up to more words on the pages as the book goes along. Preface. On June 29th, 2017, my 25 year old son Hunter was killed. The shock of Hunter's death instantly deadened me. I curled into the couch corner, moving little. When movement became inescapable, my body pressed thickly through what was now an unfamiliar landscape. I had no appetite, but could not quench my thirst. I had, at first, little information. My thoughts skittered randomly, unable to form a pattern. Days and nights were marked by how many of them had passed since Hunter's death. Eventually, I blindly reached for books to help me understand how to navigate the grief engulfing me. I did find books, but they were too wordy for my shattered attention span, too big to carry easily to be a touchstone. I wanted a guide, short, prescriptive, realistic, a book to help me help myself to help me live within my new bereaved reality. A little book of self-care for those who grieve began as notes scratched out over many midnights, thoughts formed as I lay sleepless or in the aftermath of painful dreams. This book aims to be a hand to hold for others who are grieving. Reader, it is for your support. Use this book however you want to. Read it straight through or read a page a day. Turn to it when you need to. I hope its words will lift and carry those who read them as surely as the grieving reader carries the book. A little book of self-care for those who grieve. Someone is gone, and they will not come back. Weep, scream, hate, disbelieve, go numb. Breathe, rage, breathe. Curse God or gods, beg God or gods. Breathe. Remember. Feel it, what you feel. Let it be. Sit with it because you have no choice. Sit with it. Let it be. This is the only work 
breathe. Add lemon to your water, sip. Eat something if you can, a little is okay. There is no right or wrong way to feel. There is just how you feel. Feel, breathe. Be kind now, kind to you. Grief hurts in every way. It hurts your body. Sometimes sensation comforts when words cannot. Water against skin as you stroke through. The weighty quilt, more frayed than whole, your great-grandmother pieced decades ago. Mug, hot from tea. Bowl, warm from soup. Not everyone has been initiated into grief. Friends may not know what to say. Your grief may frighten them. This is okay. Their fear is not your work. Your work is you. Time may feel strange, unreal, or hyperreal. Tasks will present themselves. Plan his memorial. Write her death notice. These may seem monumental, impossible. They may seem like a precious chance. Plan what you can, if that feels right. Ask for help, if help is what you need. Friends, family gather, a flock of angels supporting you, remembering the one you've lost who they have also lost in church, at park, by graveside, over the internet. Their presence may be physical or virtual, but it is real. Mourn, rely, retell, remember. Maybe the gathering does not fit what you planned. Someone important to you doesn't come. Someone says something that feels wrong to you. Your grief has made you raw, shortened your patience. Being confronted again with the reality that you control so little may feel especially cruel now. Notice your disappointment, your rawness. These things are. Paula, thank you. That the combination of the words and your reading and the pictures is really there's a synergy that just makes it a really powerful experience. And I know for me, I when I've got a chance to read this book and I was so touched when you asked me to do this with you because this is truly a book that what I would have benefited from. Um, although many years ago when I lost my son. Um, so I know it's going to help a lot of people. Uh, you already alluded to a little bit in your introduction, um, your the reasons that you wrote this. I, I wondered if you could talk about, and you talked about not being able to focus and, you know, needing something small that you could, could contain your 
these enormous feelings that you were having. Can you talk a little bit more about what your experience of early grief was like? What what those early sure. days and weeks sure. were? Thank you. Yes, yes, absolutely. And Carol, thank you for agreeing to do this with me. Um, you know, um, our story has a pretty long arc in that Hunter uh, suffered from addiction and battled addiction and was engaged with addiction uh, for almost 10 years before he was killed. Um, so I had a lot of experience of sort of ongoing grief during those years it was very different from having somebody dead. <laughs> and that's a very different kind of grief. Um, Hunter was, uh, his death came very suddenly. Uh, he was run over by a Greyhound bus on which he'd been a passenger so um, the shock of that, the unrealness of that, you know, I mean, that's not something that happens to many people. Um, uh, I, I just felt like uh, such a compulsion to sort of honor the, the moment of the shock and the, the grief of it all. But really, you know, people said to me, oh, you're in shock, you're in shock. And I would say, no, I'm not in shock. I mean, I went out and did... Uh, <laughs> a walking tour uh, that related to Betty McDonald a week after Hunter was killed and, and, you know, just sort of on automatic pilot. But I think any moment that I wasn't in public, I was just trying to absorb this, you know, this thing that had happened at the same time being present for, um, for my other two kids who happened to be at home that summer and, um, and to, and Barry. So it's just a very, very intense time. Um, I think for me, my mind just rolled. It just rolled all the time. Do you remember, were there things that were helpful to you in those early days um, that people did or? Yes. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's funny. One of the, the things that I read and I know people are going to say, why is she saying put lemon in your water? Um, and that's like the most practical advice in the whole book, because one thing that happened to me was I, couldn't quench my thirst. I was drinking like, you know, gallons of water and I, and I still had dry mouth. And I finally called my naturopath and I said, what has happened? And you know, she, I told her what happened uh, in the bigger picture. And she said, um, that's adrenaline. You have Mm -hmm. adrenaline, so much adrenaline going. And just, if you put lemon juice in your water, that will help to, you know, with electrolytes and balancing that and it, and it works. So that's my most practical. Some of the advice in this book is more, you know, woo woo or esoteric, but the lemon in the water, I'm swearing by that one. Um, the other thing too, of course, is that, um, you know, people did, uh, bring food that was really helpful. Uh, somebody specifically said, what can I, what kind of, you know, can I bring you a big casserole? And I said, could you please bring us some salads? Because, you know, we didn't, we couldn't eat very much. Um, and it was, it, it really helped to feel loved to have those, those, um, you know, those physical gestures for sure. And, and friends who just showed up and kept showing up and even people that I hadn't seen for a long, long time. Um, I really did feel like the, 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 everyone that I had been friends with sort of coalesced again and that, they were around us in that, in that moment. So. 
That's really, that's interesting about the adrenaline. I wouldn't have thought of that, but, but you're right. You're sort of like in that kind of intensely vibrating state all the time. And just there's something very soothing about the idea of lemon and water. Um, and the idea of people just showing up for you. Can you, can you talk a little bit about ways that they, they did that didn't feel intrusive or like that you had to answer questions? Sure. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, uh, there were times that I had to say that I would like get, get up and say, I, I have to go upstairs now and, you know, leave a, the person on the front porch that happened a couple of times and everyone was very understanding about that. And I think that that is an important thing. People often um, want to know what they can do to support someone who is grieving or especially in the earliest stages of uh, it's not a stage, <laughs> the earliest days of grief. Um, and part of it is they get a total pass on everything. You know, they can change their mind at the last minute and they should if all of a sudden they don't have the energy to deal with even the littlest thing like answering the door to take the salad that you've made or going on that walk you've suggested. You know, the person in grief, um, their job is to show up for themselves and to try to read their own their own space at that moment and and say, you know, this is going to help me, this isn't going to help me and to to just get better um, at, at trying to listen to what their body wants them to be doing. And a lot of times that means at the last minute, they're going to say, I'm sorry, I can't go do that after all. And that, that should be fine. Um, yeah. Knowing that you have permission to, to exactly. not. Yeah. Um, this sort of related to that. Are, are there things that people did that weren't helpful and not, it's never intended. Of course we know that, yeah. um, but anything that, um, in the interest of helping people know what not to do. Sure. You know, I was really, I was really, really lucky that I, there, that didn't happen very much, you know, the, a, a few times um, people would, I wanted to talk about Hunter and I think people often hesitate to ask you about your person because they think, Oh, you know, she's going to burst into tears or so what? Right. Um, and, and, um, so I didn't, I was happy to talk about him, but what I didn't want was to be, um, like grilled about what had happened or the exact circumstances of his death, which I didn't even know all of at that point. And so I think, um, <laughs> showing up and being supportive and listening and, you know, but not like questioning, <laughs> questioning, not so very helpful other than like, what level is your grief today? <laughs> you know, that's an okay question. You know, specifics are not early on for me anyway. I think you mentioned when we talked earlier too, you had a friend who just always called on Sunday night for just no other reason than just to say hello and be there if you wanted to say something or not. Yeah. Yeah. We, so there were a number of friends who, who showed up in just the most wonderful ways, but, but, um, a family that we had been very, very close to um, really all the time from, from the time that Hunter was, uh, you know, two years old. And when we first moved here um, until still, I wanted them so much (laughs) to um, be there for us after he was killed. And they were the first people who, um, who came and um, the couple had divorced many years before, but it was like, I was like, we need you. And they were like, okay, here we are together. Like, we'll be this family. Um, we're here for you. And they did. And, and just consistently, consistently 
um, Melissa, my friend, would just call every Sunday. And it wasn't always to ask about anything in particular. She would just be checking in. And that happened for years. And it still sometimes happens. And, you know, she's had things happen to her. So I try to remember to check in for her now. Um, but, But yeah, just that steady, you know, and sometimes people text just thinking about you you know, sometimes on an anniversary, but sometimes not. And texting is great because you can just put a little love heart on it and you don't have to respond more, but you feel it. So that's helpful too. You you mentioned, um, and I think it's true that people are hesitant to ask about the person who's, who's gone. Um, but can you talk a little bit about Hunter for those of us who didn't know him and you, you touched on how he died and, and so forth, but, but the person that he was, the little boy that he was and the, you know, your hopes and dreams and sure. a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Well, Hunter, Hunter, um, was my firstborn of the three children. And, um, I think your children are your teachers and he was my first teacher of that kind. And he taught me all his whole life, um, some things that I um, treasure, lessons I treasure, and other lessons that I sincerely wish I had never had to learn, but we don't get to choose that. Um, he was funny, bright, he loved movies, he was a huge reader, um, hilarious, you know, just uh, in terms of uh, his, his, you know, sense of humor. Um, and, um, you know, very... Um, you know, addiction changes uh, a lot of the circumstances for the person, but at least in our situation, I could always see that hunter who I loved there always through the whole thing. Um, it is harder when certain circumstances are harder. And it, and it was very hard by the end of Hunter's life for me to really remember him as a little boy because that just hurt so much. Um, and then after his death, uh, subsequently, it's like that little boy was able to come back again. So I think this is one of the things about grief that for me anyway, you know, even a grief, even a, even a bereavement that you anticipate coming, like you think, you know, you know, this person is, is, is not going to be there sooner or later. Um, that bereavement can, can bring, you know, circumstances that are unexpected. I never, never thought that, one of the things that would happen after Hunter's death was would be that I would be able to fully grieve and hold to my heart that that little boy and remember that little boy. And, you know, it's, it's like, there, there are ways in which grief impacts people that are unpredictable. um, And that, uh, you know, just can set you on a different path or bring, 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 uh, wholeness to something that was broken and also break something that you never thought would be anything but whole. And I think judging our grief is not helpful at all. Judging other people's grief is just immoral and wrong. Uh, Grief is, and that's really part of the point of the book is that how you feel that is and what has happened that is. And, you know, learning to take the best care of yourself as you can in each moment. I mean, that's a good lesson for life anyway, but, but grief is an opportunity. Uh, You have that, you have that thrust upon you (laughs) um, to be able to, 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 to sit, to sit with what is impossible. You know, that's just what it asks of you. 
Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and you touched on this with uh, you know the the judging of of grief and and we're hard on ourselves and we have expectations of other people and I think there's this cultural um, almost myth that the goal of grief is to get over it and to feel better. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the the longer process of grief, what that's been like for you, if it's been linear or what yeah. it's been like. That's a that's a great question. Um, you know, I. I think that once you're bereaved, um, that person, (laughs) I mean, they're never not going to be dead as far as we know in this world, you know, they're, so that is a permanent loss and therefore your grief is permanent. And um, it, some days eventually are not, eventually some minutes are not as terrible. And then after a long time, maybe some whole hours are not as terrible. And after a while, you might have a good day or, you know, things might be okay. But I think that grief can, it's not cyclical at all. And it's, it's not for me, spiral, it it just is sort of amorphous. It's, it's, you know, floating through the the constellations and, and all of a sudden, like a shooting star will come straight at you. And the shooting star sounds like a good thing, but that could be like your grief just piercing you and sometimes when that happens to me I can kind of parse out why like what what might be going on and sometimes I'm like whoa wow okay that happened and you know it doesn't help me to try to figure out why or that there's some trigger it's just like it is and so just sitting with that even years and years after your bereavement all of a sudden things can flare up and that is perfectly absolutely acceptable and to be expected. Interesting. I love that description of the sort of floating in the, in the, um, the, what did you say? The, the constellations. Um, Cause there is something about feeling of bereavement of feeling like you've almost altered, you know, entered an alternate reality you know you, time slows down or it speeds up or your sensations are either really dulled or they're really super heightened your feelings are right under your skin or you feel really detached you know there's just this sense that you're not really grounded so um yeah how what are some things that you do to take care of yourself and and how has that changed from from the beginning to now yeah that's a really good question um well so um I swim every day and I never, I, I don't think I swam at all before Hunter was killed. Maybe, I mean, I mean, I knew how to swim, but that wasn't something that I did. And uh, right after we brought his ashes back from, um, from Medford, Oregon, I, this is the silliest, it's like the universe, right? we were at the funeral home and I um, put this bag down on that had his ashes in it down on the ground. And somehow my foot got stuck in it. And I like did this weird thing with my leg to try to not fall. And I totally messed up the back of my leg so that I couldn't walk um, on the treadmill or take walks in the neighborhood. And I was like, I have to move. I'm a person who has to move every single day. And so I started swimming and it was like, Oh my goodness, this swimming there's something about water for me. It's like you're pushing through something. You ha- you, it's hard, but you can do it, which I think is, you know, maybe metaphor, right? I see most things as metaphor um, for, for, for moving through your grief. And by through, I don't mean from the beginning of it to the end of it. I just mean 
through it, you know, swimming in it. So that that's helpful to me. I I am somebody who did find a lot of help in, you know, sort of woo-woo things, um, you know, different kinds of oils. I have a grief oil. Um, I stones, you know, jewelry that is specific. Those things felt like very elemental to me. Um, and I think I've seen that a lot in, you know, grief groups or whatnot. You'll see people and they have like, you know, bracelets or whatever. It's the idea of something that is just carrying and it's helping you to kind of hold that part of you together um, has something to do with the stones that they're made of or, or whatever. Um, I also was able to get some physical work like reflexology, especially. And I had a, a massage person who worked with me. They, I have read and heard that uh, not at all to say, Oh, mother's grief is worse. Cause I a hundred percent don't me- believe that everyone's grief is their very worst grief. But um, the statistically, mothers who lose a child, they, their mortality goes up <laughs> in the years following. I mean, it can. And so I had people who worked specifically on trying to help the physical things that grief can do to your body. Um, so that was, that was really helpful, too. And my family, you know, um, and my husband and I really made a pact that we were both going to have our own grief and not be like, he wasn't going to be, you know, feel bad if I was having a worse day and he was having an okay day. And I wasn't going to, you know, that we weren't going to do that, that we would support each other, but like everybody has their own, you know, interaction with their own grief, you know, I mean, there's collective, but it's still what you're doing yourself. So that was also very, very helpful. Yeah, a lot of what you said, I, I could really connect with and the, the image of water I know, and I think I even mentioned this in my book, I, in the very beginning, it, it always felt like I was moving against the weight of water. That was my sensation of, of grief. But water is also very soothing for me. And yes, you're right. It's a great metaphor. Um, and I did not know that about mortality of, of um, people who've lost uh, uh in particular, a child. I'm, I'm glad I didn't know that. But it is really true, isn't it, that the that grief has actual physical effects on us. Yeah. It affects our immune system. It affects our blood pressure. And um, I think that's kind of an under-studied um, and under-recognized um, aspect of grief is just the, the sheer physicality of it. I agree, too. I think it, it, it affects, you, you know, everything about you, you know, your, your metabolic rate, I mean, all kinds of, of things like that. I should also say that, um, you know, um, I think grief therapists, grief therapy can be very good. I think, you know, you have to, a person has to figure out whether that's right for them. I was not a going to therapy person until I was <laughs> really on my hands and knees uh, and finally um, you know did get therapy uh, with Virginia Mason for a traumatic loss um, and that was very very helpful so I the first thing I suggest now especially when someone has been bereaved suddenly without a chance to say goodbye or with damage to the physical body um, that they try to get in with some traumatic loss uh, therapist because that there are there are issues to that particular grief that are specific to that kind of grief. And, and um, it is, uh, I think, easy to get stuck in that particular kind of grief. 
So when you yeah. know you were bereaved in that way as well. So yeah. Very yeah, very sudden, didn't get to say goodbye. Yeah, and you mentioned this in in the book, um, the idea of being able to tell the story uh, over and over if you need to, to the yeah. retelling. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the value of, of telling the story both for yourself and for other people? Yes, um, I think um, really it's not necessarily for other people um, unless you just, unless you decide to write a book about it um, <laughs> and publish a book about it. But um, for me, you know, the idea of being able to, to put the events into a narrative was essential. And part of what was just dementing for me early on was that the narrative kept changing, especially once we were in the middle of this lawsuit and I chose to get all of the information and, you know, not to, not to just let the lawyers know all the bits of information. I wanted to know it too, which meant that I would get different people's versions of what happened in that night. And it just kept, it was like, I, I had, you know, the snow globe, the snow had all fallen and then it could shaken up again and it would be mm-hmm. like, ah, mm-hmm. so, so finally creating some kind of real true narrative of what happened and also just dealing you know, with the physical aspects of, of what had happened. It's, it's, I mean, that is something that I'll be dealing with the rest of my life. And it's not just me, you know, I mean, there's lots of people lose their people in ways that are damaging to the person's body that happens every second of every day, you know? Um, But it, it, my particular bereavement, that was an aspect of what I was and am dealing with. So it's interesting. That made me think of it. There's um, the author and the poet, Richard Hoffman, I think, um, who talks about um, the process of, of partly healing through trauma is remembering what has been dismembered and, yeah. and sort of that ability to, to kind of integrate really painful information a little bit at a, at a time, which is, is, I think, one of the ways that storytelling can heal us, even if it's just telling the story to ourselves to understand yeah. it. Yeah. Well, that you talked about that so beautifully in your book when you, you know, at the end you get information that, that not only lifts this feeling, you know, of, 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 of guilt from you, to, to, but it also just, it just draws this beautiful little line, you know, through your son's whole life. Do you have, and again, this is touched on in the book, any rituals or, uh, you mentioned like altar or shrine or jewelry that you want to talk about or tattoos or anything that you personally help you. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, and I say this in the book, like, you know, you can inv- invent rituals and see if they work or not. And you can change them from day to day, year to year. The, the rituals belong to you. They belong to you. So, um, you know, I do have an altar that has things of hunters on it, some childhood things and some, you know, grown up things. And um, <laughs> this is going to sound really strange, but we still get mail from him for, for him occasionally, oh. like credit card offers. <laughs> so I'll just put those like at the bottom of the altar, like when he gets mail, I don't know what else to do with it. I can't recycle it. It's got his name on it. I'm not going to open it. That's a federal crime. So I put, <laughs> I put it on this. Yeah. Um, 
you know, um, I have um, tattoo, a tat- I have a bunch of tattoos that are related to him and uh, tattoos specifically related to him and also one to Sawyer and one to Lily, things that they drew or wrote themselves that are on my body now, which I really love. This one, um, it's a, I don't know if you can see a heart and HB was the way he signed a note to me once and I, and I, sep- I kept the note. And then um, after he died, I decided that that would be something I would want to just look at all the time. And then um, it was one of the prompts that um, that uh, was given to Rebecca for the art. And so there actually is uh, a, an illustration of the tattoo that is actually Hunter's handwriting in the book. So that makes me happy. Yeah. Well, that's ha- that's wonderful. Yeah, I always I also, Oh, yeah. And I, yes, I mean, I'm, I ritualize everything. Right? That's, that's <laughs> Yes, I have, um, you know, a labradorite, which is a stone that's supposed to be really, you know, helpful and grounding and lava bead, mala, (laughs) different malas for different things that, um, you know, don't always have to be with me. But um, and then we also we we do a couple of things. Um, I mean, the uh, anniversary of, of Hunter's death is always difficult. And we've created this um, this kind of uh for want of a better word, practice of on that day going and um, we actually go to Elliott Bay um, to buy uh, picture books, um, beautiful, beautiful mm-hmm. picture books. So Barry and I spend about an hour looking through picture books. It's the only time of the year that we really ever do that. And then we donate them to um, a children's charity. Um, it, in recent years, it has been an organization that teaches children to read um, from other cultures. So that takes a really hard day and gives us something really sweet to do on it. Um, and then on his birthday, I have this ritual of um, taking little stones and leaving them on playgrounds where he played when he was a child. And I have a little thing that I say, because I remember, especially one time uh, we were at um, up in Edmonds at the at the park on the beach there. And he found, uh, I think, a piece of what was it? Um, uh, anyway, he, he found uh, a stone um, that was like a magical stone. And he was just like, and so I thought, oh, well, I will leave these stones for children to find, you know, um, that will give them a moment of delight. So. Oh, I love the, those. Those are wonderful stories. <laughs> it, it reminds me, I know uh, of an, another mom who um, for the holidays uh, buys a present for a child who would be the age her child was becoming because your child sort of continues to grow alongside you in your imagination. And I always thought that was a really beautiful way to honor your lost person. That is beautiful. I love that. Yeah. And I do really think that so much of grief is difficult to express and that these symbols and and rituals are other sort of another form of language that we have to express. And um, I know some people here already know this, but this, like, I always wear a little star because the star is a really has a special story for me. Um, And when, and I, I found myself doing it, even when you were talking, I like, you know, it's a touchstone is truly what, what those things can be. So, yes. Um, and speaking of, you, you use the term woo-woo, but I don't think it's woo-woo. Mm-hmm. But can you talk a little bit about the experience of dreams and grief? Um, oh, which, yeah. That's, yeah. A great, that's a great idea. Well, so um, I, I started, I dream about Hunter all the time. I have lots of dreams, but the ones about Hunter, I always write down. And um, I have from the very beginning. And I have never gone back and read over the other dreams because I don't want to, like, make myself dreams. I, just, I want it to just be what comes in. 
and not as many anymore as there used to be. But what's interesting is when I dream of him, I often dream of him at between the ages of about four and six, which um, he wrote once in um, a journal that he kept during uh, rehab, which I read after his death, but that he felt like that that was when he had been the happiest um, as a person on this planet was between the ages of four and six. So it's interesting that that's how he comes to me in dreams. And I always thank him for coming to me in dreams because um, I choose to believe that, that, um, that he's choosing to come when he's not busy doing something else, whatever he's, wherever he is now and whatever it is that he has, he's up to. Sometimes he comes and visits me in my dreams. Wow. I don't know if you want to talk about it, but there's a really powerful dream in this book, um, which you may or may not want to talk about. But. Um, that is, yeah, that um, actually, I can just, should I read it? Yeah, I can read it. So this was um, not exactly a dream. It was kind of um, almost like a, um, a vision. Um, so um, at dusk, a few days after Hunter was killed, I sat on the back steps listening to bagpipe, bagpipe music floating over from Maple Leaf Park. I heard Hunter's voice in my head. His voice was clear, mature, and deeply loving. He sounded whole. He sounded healed. Here's what I taught you, Mom, I heard Hunter say. You control nothing. That's why I came. But did you have to die and in this way to convince me? I asked him in my head. Hunter said, I guess I did. My whole life I was trying so hard and I know it looked like I was always failing. But my mission was to change you, mom. And that was a really hard job. And I did it, mom. I did it. Thank you for sharing that. (sighs) Yeah. And I, I do think you said your child was your first teacher. And I, I think that's so true. I, I, every parent, I think, experiences that. So yes, I agree. I, I was really, I was struck and it's sort of, you've touched on it in different ways a little bit, but this idea that grief is work, um, you know, it, it's, it's hard work. Um, I don't know if that is something that you experienced as you were going along. You know, I, I think it doesn't resonate that way for everybody. And, and I've heard um, people say no, because uh, work you get paid for and eventually you get off uh, the shift. I think um, grief is more like caring for a tiny baby where it's just you taking care of that baby all the time. And for the first little while, you could keep thinking, wow, pretty soon I'm going to get a break. <laughs> I know I'm going to get a break. And then eventually you realize yeah, no, the world has changed forever. And there's, there's no break, you know, I will always even if I'm physically in a different place, I will be, you know, caring for that child on some level. And I think grief is sort of the same way, you know, it's it, it, it grows out, right, it gets bigger. And you don't have to have every single minute of you supporting, you know, its little head, but but it's always there. I love that. I had never heard it described that way before, but that is really true. It's very, <laughs> made it up. <laughs> very beginning. Yes. Another um, sort of recurrent, and it came through in your early reading, uh, uh, word that came up is breathe. Um, just this idea of that's what it takes to get through. Um, yeah. yeah. And really, 
that is all you have to do. You, you do not have to brush your teeth and you do not have to take a shower. I mean, eventually someone's going to probably encourage you to do that. But, but breathing is, it is truly the only thing you have to keep doing in early grief. If that's, if that's all you can handle, then you are doing your best. Yeah. Um, a few things are not so much questions, but um, Jennifer says that she loved hearing how Hunter comes to you in those dreams. And also that what you just said about his mission is so profound. Um, Jill Callahan sends her greetings from Facebook. Thank you. Uh, this is really true. Uh, Laura uh, says, so often I feel as though those who are grieving are taking care of us and those who are trying to offer require so much. It's a lot. Um, and I, I think in terms of things that people can do, it, it is that sort of stepping back and making sure that you're not asking to be taken care of and to be, you know, comforted by the person who needs the comfort. Um, yeah. That's right. And I also think that I agree with that completely. And I think that the person who's grieving should feel absolutely that they are allowed to say, thank you for that. I can't process it right now. I appreciate Mm -hmm. that you're thinking about us. And, and I'm, you know, I see that you're sad and I can't process that right now. I we're you know, or something you don't have to, it is definitely not the bereaved person's job to cheer up other people you know sometimes we're trying to help each the people close to us who are also bereaved like you know family members but you gotta you gotta have your own oxygen mask on first that's just the end of it yeah oh good I think um oh somebody says that uh she had the opportunity to hear the audiobook which is so beautiful and she said she wondered how it felt to hear your words in such a beautiful way well, you know, that's a great question. And it's funny because I voiced my other two, uh, well, looking for Betty McDonald and House on Stilts, I voiced both of those myself. But with this one, for all kinds of reasons, um, that wasn't going to happen. And, and I was so, so happy that Heather Henderson was willing to take this project on. It's like small potatoes for her. She does like big, long series and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, but because I know Heather and I, I knew that her voice could be just exactly perfect. So I just feel immensely grateful that um, she brought to the recording exactly what I, what I wanted. So Heather says it was a big project and it was an amazing project. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. Laura says, uh, Paula, many bereaved fear forgetting their person um, and what a betrayal this feels like. What are your thoughts or experiences around this? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I definitely don't fear <laughs> forgetting Hunter. That is not a fear that I have. But I, I think what I hear within that question is that um, sometimes when we're um, moving from the the earliest grief where it's all consuming to a point where some minutes or hours or days are actually pretty not horrible that we can feel guilty that we don't still we're not still in that most terrible time when when we're so connected with our person through our grief and i think my my idea is that we should know that having a good day is not a betrayal of the person that we've lost. It's just not. And it's not like, oh, they would want you to be happy because who knows? That's 
to me, that's not a helpful thought, but the, the thought is that I can, I can have a good day and I can still love Hunter and miss him as much as ever. And in fact, sometimes on good days, I'll specifically go out and take a big long walk because he really liked to walk around this city and he knew the city really well. And I'll say, I'm walking for Hunter today, you know? Yeah. Um, this actually, that sort of leads into this next question, which is sort of a heartbreaking one. Um, uh, somebody who recently lost her mother, husband, uh, pet, a little dog, an aunt and an uncle. And she wants to know, does the ache in your chest ever lighten? For um, I'm, so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yes. Um, oh, that's so much. So, so much. And all at once. Uh, um, I can only speak to my own <laughs> grief. And the, the ache is always still there, but it's it for me anyway, eventually in most days, um, got to feel more like, like, you know, that, that bruise, like a deep, deep bruise, not like, uh, someone is physically cracking my sternum or my heart. (laughs) It's more like this bruise that's always there. And I think we all have parts of our body where that's just something, I mean, if we get old, <laughs> as we get older, there are parts that just kind of always hurt in a certain way. And, and grief, I think can become like that for some people. I think that, that it does, you know, it does stay very intense um, for, a, for a very, very long time. And it can still be intense even when it's uh, the ache the, and not the, the, the crunch. I mean, it's, it's very personal, but just taking every day and just noticing you know I think that it's it's helpful for me to notice be like wow that really hurts or gosh that I walked into this sushi place on Madison and I was like bam hunter I felt it like he had was there it almost felt like and it's just that sometimes instead of being like oh no that that's crazy I don't feel that way or oh no I can't feel that way I have something else going on it's like just to notice it to name it because I think naming our grief is so powerful and it's really something that we can do again and again and again and show up and it, you don't have to change how you feel. You can't change how you feel, but you can notice how you feel and, and honor that moment because it's deep. And I, I think that that is really what you, what you captured in this book is, is being able to name the feelings and, and to know that it's whatever you are feeling is, is okay. Um, I'd encourage anyone who is hurting a lot right now to, to pick it up because it, it really is, um, there's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little book. It's a small book with not a lot of words. That's really deeply profound. So thank you, Carol. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I, I really want this book to go out and, and be a hand it, like if I could hold hands with every single person who has this book in their hands, that's what I want it to feel like. Just, just a hand, just someone saying, you know, yes, I see that. And, and I feel like the way for a book like this to, to get out there is for people to, to tell people about it or give it as a gift. I think it's going to be a book that's given as a gift a lot and just try to help spread the word because uh, you know, I, I don't have like a gigantic machine behind me pushing this book. And, you know, you're unlikely to hear me on Terry Gross. Um, but anyway, if everybody who's here tonight can just help spread the word in any possible way on social media or 
through your purchases at your independent bookstores or telling your friends. I appreciate that so, so deeply. I always have on all my books, but this one is a mission that I think will be helpful to so many. And so I really want it out there. Uh, Sarah says, who knows, Terry Gross, let's get on that. <laughs> and I agree. Okay. <laughs> we'll go on go together. <laughs> um, yes. Um, yes, someone says, that's what reading this book feels like, a friend who knows. And it reminds you, you're not alone. Thank you so much, Paula. And that Thank is really you. true. And someone says, I already plan to give it to my aunt who lost her husband this year and my uncle. So this one will fly. So that's thank you. Thank you. That's my, my hope. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it goes without saying this last year and a half in the pandemic, so many people have lost so much. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and grief, people, people are talking about grief in a different way and more now because there's so much of it. It's like the, the lid is off of that pot and, and that it's terrible that so many people have been, bereaved but it's it's good that that it's not a secret that people aren't talking about anymore because we all help carry it for each other I really believe that yeah that's so true well Paula it's been a pleasure I feel like I've just met you uh before this in person I feel like we've known each other a really long time and that's always a real gift so thank you thank you Sarah (laughs) thank you so much the Elliott Bay Book Company presented this conversation between Paula Becker and Carol Smith on September 8th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.